the free for all roundtable. Round two. On round two, let's say good morning to Bob Reed, principal at BroadwayStrategy.com and the guy behind the very popular touchdowns and fumbles heard Fridays on the Jerry Agar Show. Lindsay Broadhead is here, strategic communications and public affairs advisor. And Anne, like I say, Dowson is a Montreal-based pundit and commentator. Nice to have you all. And I want to start, not necessarily with the lighter stuff, but a lifestyle issue just because it's a change of pace. Um, And I don't know what your drinking habits are. And like I say, Dowson, are you astonished to discover that anything more than two glasses of wine a week apparently should be off the table if the doctors get their way? Do we have land? And like I said, did you, are you there? Mm. Oh, geez, sorry, I was <sighs> muted. Oh, okay, the, you know, sin of the pandemic. I'll um, say. No, I'm not. I'm not surprised. Sorry about that. Um, because, well, not just because I just come through cancer treatment, but because, you know, for a while we've known that alcohol is a neurotoxin and a carcinogen, even though it's super fun to drink and it's part of our culture. And that, you know, drinking, smoking and obesity put you at a much higher risk of cancer and the cancer rates are rising right across Canada, and partly because we're all getting older, but also for kind of largely unknown reasons. So I'm not surprised and I have to say, I don't really see what the big deal is, like labeling it and reminding people that booze might be fun, but it's actually really not very good for you at all. And you need to think about your rates of consumption. I know people have been drinking more since the pandemic, during the pandemic, like... It's kind of a drag, but I do think it's necessary from a public health standpoint. Bob Reed, I have a feeling that a lot of people are going to kick back against this and frame it as, oh, there goes the government trying to tell us how to live. I mean, well, according to the science, alcohol is not good for you. So here's your here's the advice. Yeah, and we've we've known that we've always known that excessive alcohol is is bad for you. You shouldn't drink if you're pregnant. All of those things are are really quite fundamental. I think the awareness of uh, of cancer risk is a relatively new thing. That's not something that we've talked about for a long time. But I think they've got a real tough sell here with the recommended limits that are put out because. Uh, myself and anybody in my circle of friends who are not excessive drinkers, but we're by habit just way above that uh, that two drinks a week benchmark that they're trying to put. And I mean, try and tell that to anybody who uh, comes comes from an Italian or a French or a German heritage or pretty well anywhere in Europe where they tend to live forever and alcohol is a daily part of the regimen. So it's a tough sell. The other thing, too, that I've read the stories and what I don't see, uh, on the one hand, I, I, I see the references to if you have more than two drinks a week, you're at a, a much higher risk of cancer. But we don't see it quite quantified is are are you a hundred times more likely to get cancer if you have more than two drinks a week okay well that would terrify me and a lot of people but i'm pretty sure it's not that high so they've got a communications challenge here if they're going to try and make people embrace this yeah and i'm not trying to resist this sort of thing it certainly makes me think twice when i raise a glass but lindsey broadhead doctors can be scolds i mean they're full of ideas that would make your life better that we're not interested in Right. And, you know, it sounds like Anne's story, uh, it is enough to put this all in perspective. Um, but from a communications point of view, it it's kind of like saying, you know what, we all need to run. Great. Okay. Let's, let's get, let's get running. Um, but you need to start by running a marathon. You know what I mean? And you're like, oh, 
oh, I'm not, I don't think I'm going to start there because the whole idea of just, you know, two drinks a week is unattainable for folks. So instead of taking any of it seriously, I think it's going to be, you know, just pushed to the side. Um, So I think the the campaign, as it were, is almost lost before it's begun. We, We need to give people reasonable goals uh, and and reasonable ways to integrate bringing down drinking um, in in our lives rather than just cutting it out altogether, which is ostensibly what they're asking for. We had an interesting conversation on the show a short while ago with a doctor who specializes in transplants, and he was talking about the phenomenon that more people who are getting medical assistance and dying are donating their organs. Bob Reed, it's kind of a grim conversation, but it's one I think we need to have. This is an interesting development. And it's a life-saving one for some. It's a very important discussion to have. And I listened to your interview, John, and I was I was very pleased to hear the expert that you had on say that uh, the the uh, the interest and the call for an ability to donate came from the made approved patients themselves. The ones who were approved to end their lives with medical help were the ones who brought this to the fore saying, hey, uh, because I'm doing this, I want to try and help as my last gesture. Are there any usable organs? How do I do that? How do I make that happen? I think that's very, very important. And I I think they're handling this very, very delicately. It's the last conversation that gets had with anybody who initiates the approval process for medical assistance in death, as it should be. But uh, I think it's out of what, as you rightly say, is a grim topic. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, It's a pretty bright spot. I'm glad to see it. And like I say, Dowson, the fear in some circles, even setting aside the organ donation business, is that some people are kind of hustled out the door because they're afraid they're going to be a nuisance or they've been told they're going to be a nuisance. Then you throw in the organ donation and it's sort of like, okay, well, if I'm going too soon, then I can donate my organs. I mean, does are there ethical issues to worry about? Yeah, I think, it, you know... It's a, it is a, the word that uh, we heard earlier is a good one. It's a delicate discussion and it has to be completely voluntary. And that's where it gets a bit murky because we've seen enormous cutbacks and poor quality care for seniors. And, you know, so the, the medical system, uh, you know, that we have questions about certain levels of care, but if the, if the decision is completely voluntary, I think it's the ultimate generous act. I mean, my dad left his body to the medical school at the university of Toronto uh, partly because he thought he'd make an interesting case because he died young of various, you know, maladies related to the depression and poverty. But, uh, you know, I think if it's done completely voluntarily and with sensitivity, I think it's actually a big step forward. So I have to say, I um, and I, I've signed my organ donor car. I don't know how many of us who are currently in on this conversation have done that. It's a bit daunting because it means you're facing the fact that you're going to die, we're all going to die. And that's not, you know, that's not a very pleasant prospect. But I think it's a really great gesture to make to the rest of the people around us. Let's jump to a different topic here. And that would be that uh, apparently ground penetrating radar is suggesting that at an Ontario residential school, which closed in, I think, 1992, uh, they may have found 171 unmarked graves. Uh, Lindsay Broadhead, it just makes the issue that much more real that it happens in in our province for a lot of people it's sort of like yeah yeah that was way out west don't need to concern ourselves with that yeah it's it is getting closer and closer to home um and it also feels like um with with each discovery um we're just still hitting that top of the iceberg 
Um, but it also shows that uh, I think it's each of our responsibility to ensure that the the dollars are available, so um, the the technologies can can find uh, every. Um, every home of where these children sit uh, and and that we can we can think about this we need to constantly be thinking about um you know putting ourselves in those shoes and and what would happen if if our children were taken and it is that uh, abrupt of a thought and it's an unthinkable thought but it's one we have to we have to do um so it, it it's our job to find the whole iceberg here not just the tip and Anne, I, I imagine you've read some of the same columns and think pieces that I have that try to mitigate this uh, situation, you know, insisting, well, the school is open for 100 years, kids were going to die. Yeah, um, they were, but some of them probably were abused. And, you know, to be put into a grave without a marker means that you have no dignity and you have no identity. Yeah, no, I mean, I... It's so appalling, the fact that there's probably hundreds, if not thousands, of unmarked graves of these children. Just, I mean, for a country like Canada that prides itself on its humanity, it's kind of mind-boggling that this hasn't been addressed, and it needs to be addressed. It's part of the truth and reconciliation process. Like, I, I read they found the jawbone of a child on the site of one of these schools in Saskatchewan. And I, there, is now, there are now people saying that there should be excavations done here in Montreal behind the Royal Victoria Hospital and the Allen Memorial, that there's probably unmarked graves there too, not just of Indigenous people, but of patients that were disposed of as conveniently as possible and hidden. I mean, you know, the history's not pretty, and it's got to be dealt with. Um, let's move on to Vancouver collecting a fee on disposable cups, and Bob Reed, the unfortunate side effect or non-side effect in this is that nobody knows if it's actually accomplishing anything. No, the the metrics aren't uh, aren't conclusive nor good, but I, I don't I don't think it's a bad idea. Uh, they charge a quarter if you're going to use a, a disposable cup when you go into a coffee shop, and what that will do over time is at least get people thinking. And I I know. I, I know in my gut from and, fr and from my own experience with with grocery store bags. Okay, I don't care about the nickel for the for to to use a, a plastic bag from the grocery store. That doesn't impact on me. But the fact that that line item is there and the fact that it makes me think has actually changed my habits. I am now getting into the habit of before I go into the store, I make sure I grab the reusable bag from the car. And so with the coffee shops and Vancouver, I think they're trying to do the same thing, is to change habits by putting a thought in people's mind that, hey, there's a different way you can do this, and it's not a big deal, and it has a big result. Yeah, Lindsay, it takes time, but people's behavior is changing. I mean, for example, you'll never see a young person these days who doesn't have a thermos hanging from their knapsack. Instead of going to a corner store and buying water uh, in a plastic bottle, they get their water from the tap and they put it in a thermos. So I guess in some respects, as Bob was recounting with his reuse usable bag, uh, this over time will have an impact. Hopefully. Um, it, the problem with coffee is it's almost a luxury good item in many ways. Like if, if you're spending five, six dollars for a coffee in many cases, like a quarter, it, it's not going to actually change things, I, I don't think. Um, other than education, and maybe that's what Bob was getting at, like that line item. Um, but I, I think we're going to have to take it up uh, a notch further if we really want to change the use of uh, disposable one-use goods. 
Um, it's going to have to be, you know, social shaming in a in a healthy kind of marketing way. Um, but maybe uh, discontinuation of use of certain products. It's 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 going to have to be coming from the demand side um, uh, more so than it is right now. Um, so I don't see this is a very slow trickle for change for me. I, I don't see it happening overnight. And like I say, Dustin, I think you'll be the only person who can weigh in on this because we're running out of time. But a hockey player decided to absent himself from Pride Night in the NHL, and he cites his religion. And I'm all for accommodating religion, but I, I'm not a big fan of people who use their religion in order to be intolerant. No, I agree. I, I mean, so I get this guy's point. He's concerned about religious provisions, but I... So one of the reasons why I hope that despite people's religions, they'll remain open to the people around them who make diverse choices and who are of different identities and gender fluidity. Like that's just part of life and we need to deal with it. And I don't think religion is a, a good as a valid reason for denying it. I think it, it's a dangerous, it's a slippery slope. Thank you all very much. Great to have you. And like I say, Dose and Bob Reed and Lindsay Broadhead. Catch the Roundtable, round one at 7.45, round two at 8.45. Weekday mornings on More in the Morning. News Talk 1010 Toronto.